This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. When the jury panel comes into the courtroom and the bailiff says, all rise, I know we're here. And it doesn't matter who they are, nobody should be above the law. A lot of us talk about that, but you actually done it. That's how you also maintain quality control over your practice. Yeah. That's a question I get asked a lot, and here's the answer. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation. Your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, we have Joe Carmelingo. Uh, Joe's a good friend of mine. He's a trucking lawyer from Jacksonville, Florida, with the Truck Accident Law Firm. How are you doing today, Joe? Doing great. Thank you very much for having me, Michael. Well, thanks for coming. Thanks for taking the time. We're out here at the ATAA, uh, Academy of Trucking Accident Attorneys Convention. You're actually the outgoing president of yes, the organization. Sir. <laughs> uh, so how did you become a trucking lawyer? Well, for me, uh, I had developed a, a pretty much a PI, general PI practice, a trial practice. Um, and for, for me, it was the Tony Ann Johnson case. Uh, I got a case in with a 19-year-old girl killed by a SIA double trailer truck on a small county road um, and uh, dove into the regulations, bought Michael Luzman's book, came to seminars like you did, and just fell in love with the complexity uh, and, and being able to do real justice. In that first case, um, it was a double trailer on a small county road, which is actually illegal in the state of Florida. SIA did not know that. And as part of that case, not only were we able to resolve it in a way that would obviously never take bring Tony Ann back, but did justice for their family financially SIA agreed to not drive their double trailers on county roads anywhere in the state of Florida. So the first one was a very passionate, horrible case for a good family that suffered a major tragedy. And because of the knowledge of the regulations and shared with this group and the Michael Leesermans and Joe Freeds and Michael Callens of the world, um, we were able to really make a difference, not just for that client, but on the make the roads of Florida safer. Now, that's something I like about trucking, too, is that you know, I've done a lot of automotive product liability work, and the problem with the crash board in this case is, you know, you're trying, it's important, and there have been a lot of advancements in vehicle safety. Uh, you know, we have airbags, and the airbags aren't killing people anymore, roofs are stronger, we have electronic stability control, but when you actually have the case, I mean, the driver who caused the wreck is a major factor. Right. And so, if you're resolving those cases, or if you try them, you rarely get full justice because a large percentage of responsibility is going to go to someone else. And plus, you know, when you try them, you're not going to win them as often. And so the settlement values are such that instead of fully taking care of somebody, you are helping them, you know, more than they would have been helped had you not been there. But, you know, given a couple million dollars for a quadriplegic over a lifetime does not take care of them. As opposed to a trucking case, you know, if there's there's more likely to be a situation where they are at fault, they do have the resources, you can actually do more complete justice, uh, and then if you really have a good case, you can force them to agree to safety changes as part of a settlement. Uh, it just feels better. Yeah, I mean, being able to, like you said, it's not just the financial justice for the family, but we try and, in, 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 a, in a case where a, a truck driver runs into tr stop traffic on the highway, in that case, we're try and get the family committed early on that the main thing, they don't care about money, they care about making sure that this doesn't happen to anybody else's loved one. And so getting them to commit to that early on in the case and then making that, look, we're not, we're not willing to talk $1 of settlement until you commit 
to putting FCAM and you know forward-facing collision avoidance mitigation technology with automatic emergency braking on all your new trucks starting within one year. When you're ready to make that commitment, we're ready to talk settlement. Otherwise, prepare for trial. Makes a big difference. Yeah. So did you always do finance work coming out of law school? No. Um, it's funny. I was a finance major undergrad. I went to law school to be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Um, I'm a conservative Republican. And uh, fell in, I took trial practice and fell in love being a trial lawyer. So when I came out, I was only interviewing at defense firms and only wanted to be a defense lawyer. I had drank the Kool-Aid, thought people were exaggerating their claims and lying and cheating. And then I had my, my, my then-girlfriend, now-wife, and I at the time, we got T-boned in her car, uh, and I had a soft tissue injury and realized that that's for real and those hurt. Um, and so at that point began my little Shawshank digging where I was planning my exit but didn't want to leave. I was only two and a half years in. I wanted to wait till I learned about, you know, tried cases and learned about excess coverage and multiple layers and multiple defendants. So I waited till I was on the eve of being a partner at the defense firm and then left and started my own plaintiff's firm. So you, you went right on your own? Yes, sir. And uh, did you start off handling all kinds of cases or did you start off oh, yeah. with a focus? Well, uh, it was, you know, car wrecks and that, but one, one you know, very proud that we started with a bunch of longshoremen. So in Jacksonville, okay. you know, we're a port city um, and we had taken very good care in a, in a longshore case of the president's son. Um, and from there, the president's brother was like next in line and his, you know, uh, uh, anyway, we, we got in very good with the longshoremen. I was doing longshoremen defense at my old law firm. Uh, and so we started off with 23 cases and 20 of them were longshoremen. And uh, they then sent us car wreck cases and their friends sent us car wreck cases. In fact, my number for my first client, Larry Harden, Still see him to this day, and uh, if we if we put all the fruit on the tree that came from Larry Harden's one seed, it's probably sixty percent of our practice for the first four, five, eight years. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, so Larry and I are still friends. And so, at some point, though, you said that one case inspired you. You really wanted to do the trucking stuff. Uh, how did you then go from having more of a general PI practice to being a truck specialist? Well, as you know, in your own practice, Michael, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a gut check, right? You have to make the decision to do it. and Scary. to do it. It's, well, to do it right and to do it well, it is. First of all, the knowledge of information is so much greater than car crash lawyers uh, and what they do. Uh, but then it's, you know, I, I was a marketing guy, right? Um, and you and I talk about this all the time. You're a great marketer, a great businessman. I had that model. We're, we had four or 500 cases, uh, only... 15 of which were tractor-trailer commercial motor vehicle. And so I joined a law firm for a few years where I could jettison all my car wrecks to them. I would do handle their truck wrecks and then let me establish myself as the truck guy and then left and started my own truck firm. And so you do have to take that leap of faith that you'll get enough trucking cases to feed your family. Yeah, well, you have to be, you know, you have to have your own personal nest egg because as, as we've talked about, uh, you know, in, in a truck practice, you may cover your monthly expenses six in a good year, six in a bad year, maybe, you know, seven or eight months out of the year, you go without covering your expenses. Like three or four months out of the year, you make the money to pay for the whole year. So everyone else gets paid, all the expenses in the case get paid, but sometimes, you know, the owners don't get paid. Uh, and usually you've got to be well healed financially, personally, and for the business. And to take that scary leap of faith when someone sends you a three or four hundred thousand car wreck case and you're like no thank you i don't want that yeah i remember i i had uh, probably at my firm we had at least 150 200 
car wreck cases at the time, and I still remember I had lunch with Michael Leeserman in New Orleans at an AHA thing. I said, Michael, how did you get there? How did you get to we only have these good trucking cases? And it was so simple, but he just said, well, I just said no to everything else. <laughs> and it just, it, it just never dawned on me. From the words of the guru. <laughs> uh, and it, 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 I, I can't say I went back that next day and started saying no to everything else, but I, you know, it inspired me. And I think within a year, I started saying no to regular car wrecks. And then over the years, we've said no to more and more and more kinds of cases. And now we do, you know, truck wrecks. And if it's going to be a, are things that are big enough to learn do something that's outside the system. Right. I mean, for us, kind of the same thing. We started off where we would take any truck or commercial, like literally, I don't care how bad the liability is, I'm going to go make a difference for this family. We were on a crusade, uh, and we still take tough liability cases, but it's got to be <laughs> not the crazy ones where, like, my client was going 108 in a 45 on a motorcycle, and a truck pulled out in front of him. We took that case. We got seven-figure result for their family, but a lot of people thought I was crazy for taking that one. Well, you were. Just because it worked out doesn't mean you weren't. That's, well, that's a good point. But that's the point. You've got to be, right? The yeah. defense has to know that you're that crazy SOB that's going to go try that case yeah. and spend $200,000 of your own money to, to finance that for the client. And if you really look at the risks career-wise, I mean, yeah, you're risking your money and your time in that case. But, like, if you lose that case as a plaintiff lawyer, well, so what? You're, you're supposed fine. to lose. But if the defense lawyer loses that case, he's losing that that insurance company. Oh, yeah. And, and that brings up a very good – one thing I love about doing commercial motor vehicle work, I, I said this to somebody yesterday who just left the defense and came to the plaintiff uh, at, our, at our group meeting here. I said, what we do is like a chessboard with 100 or 500 pieces, depending on the complexity of the case, and we play that master chess game so much better on the plaintiff side, uh, the real truck lawyers, than the defense side. It's like we're getting 15 moves to their one, but they're only seeing that one move. Well, plus the insurance company won't pay them to think. That's right. I Good mean, point. They, they will pay them to do a depot. They will pay them to review documents. They will not pay them to, and especially, especially they won't pay two or three people or six people to get together in a room and brainstorm. Uh, That's like a very we do good in point. Our cases, and it, it's just a a huge advantage because the the what makes it or breaks a case, the insurance companies are too cheap to invest in. It's one hundred percent. And what we see, and this is my talk today. Uh, you know, be, get, get your jury instructions and your trial exhibits done so that you know what your closing argument is and your Vordire themes before you take the first depot. Because even the really, and there's not a lot of really good defense lawyers out there, no offense. I mean, there are some good ones, but the really good ones that can both prepare a case and try a case are a few and far between. And they're so busy that they're sending the associate or the junior partner who's not to the depots. And so by the time, if we do our work right in prep, by the time the real tr- defense trial lawyer comes in, this this die is cast. The case is done. You're in damage control. So why would you, you know, I, I had heard that in my own career. I only started doing it. I, I'm ashamed to admit I've only started doing this in the last two years because I tried so Texas is broad form negligence. And so unless you have gross negligence, it's just failure to use ordinary care. That is failure to do that which a person of ordinary prudence would do. Uh, or not do in the same or similar circumstances. Like, you can why? cite it in your sleep. <laughs> hey, I know that. Why Why do I need to go do this? Um, and and doing it, actually, especially doing the gross negligence first, uh, has changed my practice. But I want to hear from you. Why do you think it's important to start with a jury charge? Well, it's... First of all, that... When, when you think about... 
um, I, I want to prepare my case like I'm a juror in the room listening to the foreperson. Not the foreperson because I'd like to control the discussion, right? But I'm a juror in the room listening to the foreperson as they read through the jury instructions and the questions on the verdict form. The questions that they're going to be debating are why not – if you're asking the questions right in deposition, if you've pled the case right uh, so that there are stipulations or things that are coming in that the jury sees – if you've asked the questions in the language of the jury instruction, then they don't have to argue back there as to whether or not you proved that it was what was reasonable for a truck company. If you say, was that safe? If you say, was that proper? Well, they get to debate back there what that meant. But if you ask that question in the first depot, would you agree that a reasonable truck company would? A reasonable and prudent truck, which is Florida, right? What a reasonable and prudent truck company would do under similar circumstances or wouldn't do under similar circumstances. So if you ask the question, instead of, was that safe, is that proper, is there a better way? If you say, wouldn't you agree that a reasonable and prudent truck company would X, and they didn't, then the jurors in the back of the room, there's no question whether safety met the standard or reason. You know, you've used the actual instructions that will guide their deliberations from the beginning of the case. And it really focuses you on, um, in your discovery, on getting what's important, getting what you need to get those answers you want. That's exactly right. Instead of now discovering, like, some people take really fast depositions, right? My partners, Joe Free, Mike Leesman, they can take a, a deposition in an hour that may take me three or four hours. But the key things that you want, you hone in on, and those are the things you have to ask in the language of the jury instructions. And you, so you start thinking about trial exhibits before you, absolutely, before you even take a deposition. What are the kind of trials that you'd be thinking of before you even take your first depot? So for me, again, it's explaining the jury instruction charge. So that you, you know, I'm, my jury, my uh, and you've been to Rodney Jew as well, right? The I have, but a lot of our uh, <laughs> two thousand listeners have not. Okay, uh, so. so you know, you, you you start with the jury instruction, and then you explain on a on an ex, on a trial exhibit what that means for a reasonable trucking company, because the general usually the jury instruction doesn't say trucking company; it just says negligence is failure to use reasonable care, blah blah blah, and then. You teach the jury, like, how do I teach this jury what a reasonable trucking company would do? So you develop how you would want to teach that to a jury using in your, I mean, think about your closing argument. What am I going to say to a jury that's going to teach them that this, this trucking company didn't act reasonably in hiring the truck driver, right? They failed that a reasonable truck company would do a background check, would check three years with all employers, would do a seven-year driving history check, would, sub, would check all of their prior drug and alcohol records, would do their own drug test, would do their uh, drug and alcohol test, would do their own road test, and would check the, the pre-employment screening program through the FMCSA. A trucking company that does all of those things hires a safe truck driver. What did trucking company ABC do? Well, they didn't do any of that, and now they hired a bad driver. So that contrast of good versus evil, safe versus unsafe, reasonable trucking company versus not, if you think about how you would teach that at the end of the day, what you would love to show the jury, and then you build that into your trial exhibits and build that into the questions you ask to support your trial exhibits, you win. You Basically, you've, your closing argument is proved from the first deposition. It's funny. I'm now taking them with me in the depot, and I'm not using them. I right. rarely show them to the uh, other uh, to the witness. I occasionally... Just to freak people out, let the defense lawyer see. Like, I'm going through my stack and make sure he sees that I have the stuff just so he's like. You know, so he knows you have your trial exhibit. Yeah, so he's starting to freak out. Like, hey, this guy's actually getting ready for trial. He's not just. Because the expectation everyone has is, oh, we're all going to go play play the game for a little while and then we're going to get it settled. 
And that's so key, though, Mike. I just had this discussion. I'm working on a case in Las Vegas with a great trial lawyer out there who's not a truck lawyer. Brought me in. We're having this. We're, we're doing a great job for the client. And um, I said, why don't we start filing motions in limine? Like, we, wait a minute. Trial's not for whatever, six, eight months away. Normally, we do it at the very end. Why? Let's let them know we're ready for trial now. We want the judge to rule on evidentiary issues that won't be in the trial that's months away. But the defense, if the defense knows from the very beginning, from the exhibits you use in your deposition, from the questions you ask, and you follow that up with a page in line disclosure for, deposit, for trial testimony of their witness and a motion in limine, they're going to know you're preparing the case for trial, and it will make a big difference in getting your case resolved for fair dollar. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's a pain because it means you have to do a lot of work up front. That's the, and that's, you know, where other people would spend maybe a, an hour or so preparing for a deposition. We spend days. Uh, and that's, you know, like we talked about systems and processes. We have, a, we have a depo set checklist. When you set a deposition, here is the checklist. Who's doing X, Y, and Z? Do we have all the discovery we need? Is there any follow-up discovery? Who's doing the outline? When is it due? And then you schedule the depot brain sessions, like you're saying, six, eight people in a room, whiteboard, exhibits. What do we want to prove? Let's talk about the case. What are the landmines? How do we secure it? It takes hours and hours of prep, not just for deposing the other side, but other lawyers like spend an hour preparing their client for deposition or for trial. We spend days, days preparing our clients for depositions. How do you afford to spend all that time? Uh, you don't sleep much, <laughs> right? Uh, you just have to work it in. And that's why part of the reason, if you develop this truck practice like we were talking about earlier, Michael, that you can't take all those car wreck cases, even though they're easy and they're system cases, they take time, time that every minute or hour you spend on a two or $300,000 easy car wreck case that seems like easy money is time you're not spending on a potential eight-figure trucking case. That's the opportunity cost you have to think about. And that's what we found, especially, you know, Mallory Peacock, one of my partners and I, work fantastic so lawyer. Sonia's coming in and she's doing a great job too, but, you know, Mallory and I are having this fantastic year because we have got the docket down small enough that we can really focus, and I'm seeing the difference in values. Yes, we spent so much more time on each case, but if you looked at what we made per hour, because we weren't working on other cases, we had the faith that this was going to work out, we're actually making, I mean, from a pure financial point of view, making so much more money uh, because we are spending the time. I mean, yeah. So even though it's a lot of work, it's our, per hour is better than trying to, to juggle a bunch of stuff and then having to settle for what we can get or have to go try it when it's not like, darn it, I wish I'd asked this or I wish I'd gotten that in or yeah, I wish I'd compelled this document. Yeah, but, it's, know, too it's too late at that point. Unless right. I want to get another six-month continuance, which I don't want. And, uh, so it, it, that brings up a very, very good topic. So a bunch of people in car wreck cases and other types of slip and falls, you know, we all started out, or many of us started as general PI lawyers, you're always worried, am I wasting my time? Yeah. Right? In a truck wreck case, it's not, it's not the case. You know, when you try a car crash case, you come in as, oh, gosh, here's another PI lawyer and another PI case. When you come in in a trucking case, especially the real ones that you and I are handling, we're, we're the white knights. We're the paladins riding in on the white horse. We're not the enemy anymore. And so in a tractor, trailer, bus, or commercial motor vehicle case, the amount of recovery that your client gets, and hence you get, 
is directly proportional to the amount of time you put in. It's very simple. There are very few cases in my 25-year career, 15 years now doing trucks, uh, seven or eight years almost exclusively trucks and, and buses and commercial motor vehicles. I don't think there is a single case where the I have felt like I put too much time into that file. Absolutely, we've had and we've had to readjust our. Like we thought we were doing pretty well. Other people were referring to cases, but we've actually had to readjust our mindset on being open to the possibility of how much a case can be worth one other time. But you also have to make sure that you do you know, like you said, you did some crazy stuff at the beginning on some of the cases you took. If you're going to do this kind of practice, you do have to learn to say no to the cases that don't justify that. That's right. Even if they are a trucking case, because every hour you spend on a case that's not a good case or is an hour you take away from yeah. your good case and, and, and some real good you can do for a deserving client. There's there's no doubt from a from the perspective of who you can help, you can't help everyone, right? And one of the things that you have to realize is every time you say yes to another case, you're saying no to some time on your current client load. So one of the things that I've done in my office, I'll probably have a picture of it. In my office, like I have big three big screens. I'm sure you have a bunch of screens, right? Well, right below where they, they're on the risers, right below them is a collage of every wrongful death client oh, wow. our law firm has ever represented. And so it's when, when I'm tired or thinking or I'm on the phone saying yes to a case, I've got to look at them. And to my right near my phone is my biggest cases I'm currently handling. And so when I pick up that phone and then to the right of that is my two kids. And that's what when I pick up the phone and say yes, either to a charity event, speaking event or to some other case, I have to understand I'm taking something away from everybody else in my life, from my family to my clients, the existing clients that are counting on me. That's brilliant. Idea. It's just a visual. When you say yes to them, you're saying no to somebody else in your life. I know Sonia bought me a no bucket one the first time I went to go see Rodney too. And one of the commitments, I mean, Rodney gives a speech about you have too many cases, you have to have fewer cases. That's right. And it, it really hit home to us. Another thing I had done, I, did, I had just done a, uh, a business evaluation. Um, and one of the things I looked at, you know, I'd always looked at my average fee, and my average fee was going up, and I was happy with where it was. But then one year I started doing median fees. So like what is, you know, half, half of the fees in my firm, I mean, the, the median was so much lower than the average. And I'm realizing we have a bunch of cases that we're doing that we're not pulling your, that's on. right, we're that's losing, right. Like, we, if we had just taken the top five cases, if I could figure out a way to just get those five cases without taking other ones, we would have made so much more money and the resources we put into the bottom 50% of the cases actually were unprofitable. Well, and not only that, when you establish yourself like you have and you become one of the, the truck lawyers, commercial motor vehicle lawyers, you have to have space in your inventory for that new call. Yeah. Because you, you, you know, we always pay attention. What, what's our top 10 cases? What are our top 10 cases? What are our top 10 cases? How do we move them forward? Right. What's this quarter? What's next year? Again, looking from a key, a key practice indicator, a dashboard type analysis. But you, if you've said yes to some of those smaller cases because you have capacity at the time, and now you're almost at capacity, and that you know nine-figure case calls or the big eight-figure case that's definitely going to be in your top five, if not your number one, you have to have some capacity in your life, in your firm, to dive, stop, drop, and roll, divert resources, all hands on deck. We've got a new one. Everybody stop what you're doing. Plus, you can't work your people at... Capacity, or yourself at capacity every day. 
Right. You, that's when you will break down. That's when you'll burn out. That's when you'll make mistakes. Or you get all the problems we see in our profession, drugs, alcohol, suicide, infidelity, you know, everything else you see when people are managing the self-imposed stress in a bad way. Yeah, everybody handles that differently. For me, uh, it's not the case. I'm one of the rare birds that doesn't sleep and works till midnight and all that stuff. But I love what I do. Yeah. Uh, I still make the time to coach my kids soccer and take vacations with the family and drive them to school in the morning and all those things when I'm in town. So we have a very tight-knit family. But many people can't do that. You're exactly right. And, and, and you have to do what's right for you and develop a stress level to where you're still having quality time with your family and, and, you're, and you're not – like you said, you can't – if you overwork all of your people, they will not be as, as efficient. You know, in a small firm, they say uh, – in a small service-related business, not just a firm, they say people make you money. Well, my, our theory in our firm is happy people make you more money. Yeah. Right? So you got to give them support. you got to treat them like they're gold. you got to take them – you got to have fun social things. You know, if their kid's sick, you, yeah, absolutely, we'll, we'll, we'll go ahead, take your time, you know. My kids, Halloween parade, whatever you got to do. Yeah, absolutely. You talked about systems. What are some of the kind of system? First of all, what is a system for people that might not be? I mean, we speak this language, and I right. forget that I had to learn what this was. So what do you mean by systems? So, and, and Well, systems mean different things to different people. For us, you know, I come from a finance degree. I owned businesses before I went to law school. I was going to be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company and fell in love with the practice of law. So for me... I wanted to make sure that everybody in our firm understood what my logic was for everything. So when we sign up a case, we have an case intake checklist, and it's everything you should consider from you know sending a letter, or a thank you to the referral, a referring attorney or the person, all the way to preservation letters, systematic opening of the file, who's responsible, who's doing what. Uh, we have a case intake form uh, or uh, for the case where. It's probably 15 pages where the, whoever the lawyer is that's doing the intake of the client needs to fill that out to make sure that the paralegals can open the file correctly. And they don't forget to get social security numbers or dates of birth, past medical history, all these things that, oh, I forgot to ask about that. Our paralegals, if, if one of our lawyers doesn't fill that out completely, they come to me and the lawyer gets in trouble because that paralegal shouldn't be following up to do the job that they should have did. Uh, and then we have systems like when we open a case – we have a, a ton of, we use uh, used needles, we use um, trial works. Uh-huh. They're now, I think, joined at the hip somewhere. But uh, when we open a case, we have all these fast tracks. It's okay, from this day forward, it's not just statute of limitations warnings. It's follow-up with the client. We do a 90-day review of the case, and we do a six-month review of the case. Is it the case we, at 90 days, is this the case we thought it was coming in? Are we in suit already? Like, you know, we were talking about before we went on the radio. Well, what are we doing? And then at six months, has that changed? Is this still the same case we thought it was at 90 days? Are we moving it up? Are we moving it down? Are we referring it out? So that kind of systematic approach to handling the file and the business end of what that means. And then we have other things like when a FOIA request or discovery or depot comes in, what's supposed to happen? We have a checklist. LA for legal assistant, para for paralegal, ATTY for attorney. Exactly what's supposed to be done and within how long for every single process that happens. Now, what do you say, you know, because I've had this argument when lawyers have come into the firm or when I've tried to implement systems, say, hey, you know, this isn't McDonald's. It's not like you're having to follow step-by-step to make a cheeseburger. You know, this is an art. It's not just a, a, a process. We're not a mill firm. What's, what do you, how do you counter that? Uh, when a new lawyer comes in? Or any lawyer that says that. Yeah, well, 
I tell them, learn the system first and then tell me if you don't think it's McDonald's. We're not making McDonald's french fries here, but what I want to make sure is you don't miss something, right? And so, I, you know, systems are great. They all have to be followed. Even in our firm, we're not perfect. The system, you know, depending on how busy we are, we're in trial. Things don't get followed. I just had to, in, in the middle of a trial, most my most recent trial, my accident reconstructionist was cross-examined because at the time of his deposition, my team had not given him all the photographs. And I remember that feeling in his deposition. It was that deposition when I came back and made all those systems and processes. <laughs> Literally, it was that depot. And that one case now went to trial, and I had to deal with that for him on cross-examination and dive on the sword. That was my fault as the lawyer. But as the lawyer, I'm assuming when the paralegal has this come in, we have a liability expert involved and the pictures are in, that they're going to the liability expert. <laughs> yeah, what I found is when you follow the systems, it frees you up to do the creative stuff. That's, that, the whole thing is it allows you to do more creative stuff because the systems are, they should be almost self-executing. Right. And that's what people don't get is that you follow the rules, then you're not worried about, did I send those pictures? Have I answered my discovery on time? When is, is, do I have a deadline coming up? That's right. Have we sent our experts what they need? Do we need to hire more experts? I mean, you're following the systems. You're doing the, those things automatically, so then you can spend your time on the deep stuff. What what is what do I have to prove in this case? How am I going to prove it? Where can I find sources to say that what our expert says is the truth? Uh, you know, how can I? What's the best method to tell this story or cross-examine this witness rather than the, you know, did we get this right? What have we sent out? You know. Does anyone remember what we sent out? You know, yeah. that kind of stuff. Well, the worst thing is you, you take, you know, you get all ready, you take the first round of depots, and then there's depots like four months later. And in that round of depots, you did a to do list, a follow up, what discovery you need, everything else. And then three months later, you go to re dive in, and no one has sent up the, you know, no, you know, no one has done that discovery. No one has done the follow up. The depots aren't summarized, they're not to your experts. What's going on here? And, and so every now and then one slips through the cracks. One thing we did really, really, uh, not recently, I guess two years ago when we started Truck Accident Law Firm, um, we have a non-legal person. So I hired an executive assistant for me, not a legal assistant. That executive assistant helps me with my email and staying on top of things, marketing like we talked about. Um, but most importantly, my executive assistant, every, every Monday and every Friday sends out a upcoming deadline and upcoming events list and if there's deadlines that are close he goes around to that person and says is this done what do you need joe's going to need this so it's he's not doing the work but he's going around there to, in, just in case it's not on their radar or they're not reading the email or they're not looking at the things on the calendar a non-legal person we do the same thing with statutes limitations our office manager keeps a backup spreadsheet and goes around when those things come up to the team and say what's going on with this case she has no idea what law is she's a bookkeeper and office manager but she's saying, is this done? Have we filed everybody? Do we need to do anything with this? That's brilliant. Yeah, because one of my biggest struggles was I, when I learned what systems are, I read a book called The E-Myth. Right, E-Myth uh, Revisited. <laughs> I actually uh, got an E-Myth coach for a year or so. As we come up with these great detailed systems, we program them into our needles, computer, uh, software, but getting people to actually follow them. And that's right. That's, that's the challenge. Because you get busy practicing law. And so the finding a way to to get buy-in and then you know keep track of our people actually following the system that's been a, a well, challenge over the years. And the key is you have good people. I have good people. It's not like they're being lazy or not working. It's because we're busy and we're telling them to do 1,600 things right. that are not on their system list, right? So that's you got to get them the help when they need the help or make sure that they're comfortable enough 
asking for help. Yeah, and, and, and that's a lot of it, getting, getting that sense of, if I tell someone I need help, I'm not going to lose my job. Right. And we've had that, you know, we've seen like one position was, like our intake position was too much for one person, but she resisted us getting a second intake, but she thought that we were trying to replace her with someone that would work faster. I was yeah. like, no, it's just, I want to give you the resources you need to do your job. Especially with intake. Yeah. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking, commercial motor vehicle, and product liability cases. If you have a case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. We would be honored to review the case in detail, discuss where we believe we can add value, and create a mutually beneficial partnership. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to podcast at triallawyernation.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail. And now, back to the show. So how did you learn to develop systems? Uh, I, you, you said you had an e-myth coach. Uh, we used Atticus. Okay. Uh, they're a, they're a uh, practice management advisor's for um, small law firms that do defense, plaintiff, you know. But what's funny is I heard about their Rainmaker program, and I'm a kind of a natural-born marketer, extrovert, outgoing person like you. And uh, But I, I wanted my partners were not. Greg Anderson, who's still my partner, Heath Brockwell at the time, were not natural marketers. And so I actually, we joined um, Atticus for them. And I'm the one that really received the most benefit from it. That's funny. That's right. And because I was doing things naturally but not well. Um, And then Atticus just opened my eyes to so many things, and I wasn't doing it systematically, like 12 marketing contacts a month, right? What marketing skill are you working on this month? Having a dashboard, not just for working in your business but working on your business and helping it grow. And so a great example was I'd take people to lunch because we had just started our firm and you know, I'm on the edge of my seat waiting to tell them about me and the firm, and I'm all excited. And Atticus changed all that. When you go there, so we have a, uh, like if I'm having lunch with you, Michael Cowan, and you're in Jacksonville, my EA would put a, on my chair that morning, you're having lunch with Michael Cowan, here's your contact. It would say who your wife, your kids are, your coach in soccer, whatever it is. And my job was to look at that and come back out of there knowing more about your firm and you and your person uh, and then come out of there with a follow-up action. Like a buddy of mine was just starting to coach soccer. Came back, told my EA, hey, send him two or three books on coaching girls soccer, right? Just something like that. And then calendar six months out or three months out, hey, I want to send him a thank you. How would your first season go? Yeah. Those are little things that make such a difference. They build the relationship. So I was going to those lunches like, let me tell you about me. Still listening and caring because I'm a people person. But now – it was all about them, and then eventually, like, well, let's stop talking about me. What's going on with you? How's your practice going? What's yeah. going on? And it, it, you develop that relationship. Absolutely, and it, you know, get other. I like to find other people to talk about me. That's it's, I mean, that's exactly really, that's right. The, that's the way to do it. And, and our marketing piece. I mean, people. We we have lunch as friends, but they also they're not stupid. They know why we want to what we want. Yeah. Uh, so I anyway, the rainmakers. Let's go ahead. Go ahead. Where we actually, for like our top ten people, we have. Uh, if I haven't had lunch or dinner or met in person with somebody for a certain period of time, I'll get a reminder. That's uh, great. From my assistant, like, hey, you need to go see this person. And we kept the top twenty, and then we called the farm team, right? The the farm team and the people who can move up into the top twenty, right? Yeah. So you keep track of your best and then your next best. But uh, so we got, we got in on the marketing side of Atticus, and then we got a practice advisor, and that was what did it for me. She was she was uh, an accountant. Cammie Hauser, she was fantastic. 
and um, she helped really develop the systems. Like she was the one. It wasn't my clients at first. It was my kids because I was I was president of the bar at the time and was in FJA and doing all these charity things. And she said, that's great, but that's keeping you away from your cases and your family, Joe. And she's the one that had me put my pictures of my two daughters. Yeah. On both. She came to my office and said, where, where are your pictures of your kids? Oh, they're on my bookshelf way over there for people. She's like, no, 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 no. You put them right next to your phone and computer. So when you say yes to anybody else, you look at right them and say no. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why I adapted to add my other clients there. Yeah. Actually, just so to be fair to everybody, I didn't just use email. I used them for a while, and then I ended up with Vista. Yeah, and I like them. Uh, I think we got what we could get out of them after a few years. Uh, but Tim Mackey has a good group there, and uh, you know they were more legal specific, and I thought they were a little more helpful. Um, well, and for this is so important. Uh, I we talked about this thing right before we went on the radio. You weren't always a great businessman. You said you had to. Oh, the horrible. Business you man. had to learn. But many lawyers are. Many professionals are. They make money despite themselves. When I first went out on my own. I shared space with a PI lawyer I greatly respected. So we're, you know, and I'm a finance guy. So, hey, what do you do for your monthly KPIs? Like, what are you talking about? What financials do you look at every month? Because I want to make sure we have the right reports. We're doing balance sheet, income statement, intake. He's like, my wife's my office manager, and she says she lets me know when the account gets below 5000 and we go settle some cases. Like, that was his business model. Yeah, that was, (laughs) you know, the, my first boss, I'm not going to name him because of this, our system we had a handwritten legal pad that had the statute of limitations dates so we crossed those off as we filed lawsuits and then once every six months we would empty out the file room and then we would go through the files before and look at them before we put them back on the shelves and there were cases that only got taken off the shelf once every six it was crazy yeah and then uh you know our cases would get set for trial when, when we'd get a notice from the court saying they were to dismiss our case for one of prosecution unless we filed and so we filed a motion to That's reinstate right. and set it for trial rather than aggressively pushing the case yeah. uh it's just but back in the old days this guy the thought was you sign up as many cases as you can and you just it's well, crazy and the point is for for firms out there we're not talking down. We were all in that situation. Yeah. There are resources like Vista, like Emith, like business coaches, like Atticus that can help you develop a system. Even if you just do it for a, a year or a few, at least get the system and get better at business because that's such an important part of what we do. We should all be great businessmen or, and women that happen to be great trial lawyers. You know, it's funny. I, I used to feel guilty about making money. I think that was one of my biggest, and, and it wasn't all conscious, uh, you know, because we were, I, I didn't want to be the big bad person and I didn't want to be greedy. Uh, and what I found is since when I didn't run a good business, you know, sometimes, yeah, limitations are wrong, I can confess this, you know, I got to con- gotta continue the case because I can't hire, I don't have enough cash to hire the experts I need in this case. And so I need to get it, find a reason to get a continuance so that I can hire experts. Uh, you know, just I was always stressed, not giving things. And now that I'm running a business properly, I'm a much better lawyer for my clients. That's right. Uh, Money's not an object. You're well healed. Call, you know, experts twenty thousand dollars. Here you go. What do you need? Let's go. But uh, and so, but it, it was a mindset. I had to change my inside of my mind because uh, what I would do, I'd run a horrible business, just make but make enough money to overcome. Right. And and, and get in a hole and dig out and get in a hole. Uh, and I just remember uh, I settled a case for five million dollars, and I got a car. That's it. A car. It was a nice car. That's all I. I mean, all I could afford out of that that five million dollar settlement was a car, and everything else went to pay debt and past due. 
Yeah. Taxes, debt, and past due uh, bills. And uh, I realized, like, if I don't stop, I mean, it's just a treadmill. I'm never going to get off of it. Well, and, like, the hard part for small business owners like us is this phantom income, right? Where yeah. if, you, if you are advancing client money out of your own operating account – and, and let's say you have a million dollars expended. At the end of the year, you owe $400,000 on that money you've put out in a loan, that phantom income, as if you received that million dollars yourself. And you got to pay taxes on that. And that can, that can be a huge kick in the shorts for anyone. Yeah, my CPA told me last week that my taxes incurred as of today that I'm going to have to pay are double what I've paid myself so far this year. Because, <laughs> right. But I've paid down a bunch of debt. Now, right. you know, my thought is I'll pay the lines of credit. If I need to borrow it back, I'll pay the taxes they brought back at least i get the movement of the lines and those banks like that so here's a tip that we learned that i figured out because for years i have hated phantom income uh-huh. um because we would fund we, we funded an advanced cost out of ourselves so we have a separate advanced cost operating line i mean advanced cost line outside of our operating line but more importantly we try and fund all advanced costs out of personal after-tax money so you can you can loan it into your firm right just for advanced cost, take a small interest rate on it that your firm pays you, not your client, because yeah. you're not a bank. Um, but then it's after-tax money being loaned in. It's not your firm money, and you never get phantom income for that. That's smart. Uh, and then if you have lines of credit, borrow personally from the bank, pay that down December 31. January thir- 1, you pay it back, and you don't have phantom income on your operating line as well. Not good. So it's easy, just one-day transactions with a good banker that will keep you from, you know, if you don't do that and you pay it back January 2nd with a big case that settled in December that you thought was going to clear, you now have to pay the phantom income tax on it. Any books you could recommend to people that, that want to learn how to get better systems in their... Uh, yes, there's a book called The Power of Systems. Okay. That's very good. I have to look up the author. E-Myth is a fantastic book for systems. Um it's kind of funny though you want to talk about easy systems to try a case and themes Keith Mitnick's book Don't Eat the Bruises is very almost like a system on how to try cases or how to try different issues in cases but I really like The Power of Systems and I love the E-Myth Revisited book from the business aspect who wrote The Power of Systems we're both trying to look at our phones if you give me just a sec uh, The Power of a System by John H. Fisher How to build the injury law practice of your dreams. (laughs) And that will be in the show notes for anyone that wants to get that. Great. There's also be the CEO of your law firm. It's pretty good, but I like the power of system. Uh, Is that by the same author? No, that one is by... uh, The the be the CEO of your own law firm is by uh, Alexandra Lozano. And I just want to, you touched on this a little bit in the beginning, but you know, you, you have really made the transition to being a, a true trucking specialist. And how did you become the subject matter expert you needed to be so that you could, you know, how did you learn to be a true trucking lawyer so that you could be a specialist? So from that first case, we dove in, right? We bought the FMCSRs. We bought Mike Leeserman's book. We went to seminars, um, gosh, starting 10, 15 years ago. And just started trying to absorb everything. Oh, I heard of, seminars. Uh, most of it was AAJ, Truck Litigation Group members only. Um, back then, that, uh, that's pretty much where I where I got started in trucks. Uh, and then 
360 Advocacy did some good trucking programs, and by then I was speaking at them or attending. Uh, and now ATAA with the symposium, the Academy of Truck Accident Attorneys has put a great symposium together. And I learn from you, or I learn from, we hear the same speaker speak, but I take something home from everyone every time. I'm still taking notes today. That's yeah. right. And, uh, no, that's great. That's so important. And I think the AHA, New Trucking Litigation Group, if you're already an AHA member, it's chief. I'm membership chair, so I've done an ulterior There you go. It's 200 bucks. It's like nothing in our members it's only program. It's fantastic. I mean, we have good programs at the convention, but those are more aimed at someone who might not be doing a lot of trucking law because that's the it's audience. It's more basic, right. Uh, whereas at the members only, it's a much more advanced. People, sh It's not that they don't share what they know with the general. It's just there's an assumption that the members only, that people already have the basics, and we can really dive into the deep stuff, and I've learned so much of those. Well, and... Uh, frankly, it's it's uh, people are more willing to share it than members only. It's not recorded. It's not for CLE. It's a closed door session of the, some of the best trucking minds in the country, as you said, taking deep dives into very specific issues. Um, so that's very helpful. The other thing that I really has made me a better lawyer is you know every year you can order the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Regulations. They don't always change every year, but I get a new book every year, um, and I reread it cover to cover. And I always pick something out of there that is just I either I didn't pick before or I, now I have cases that it's relevant to. Uh, and that's really a, just a good way to, you know, instead of reading whatever, E-Myth Revisited or some social book or, you know, top New York Times bestseller, for the January and February, read the FMCSRs again. You know, and it does, you do notice things when you look at them again. That's one of the things I got out of taking the trucking board certification exam. My bigger thing is studying for the exam made me catch new things and learn new things yeah. I would not have otherwise known. Yeah, so for me, I, I gave the example earlier in my, in my breakout session talk, the, the, the definition of safety management controls is so clear what they're supposed to have, you know, because the OP1 promise just says that they're going to have safety management controls in place. What does that mean? Well, there's a definition in the regs that is amazing. And it breaks down what they're supposed to, what it means to have safety management controls. And I love when the defense lawyer objects, judge, vague and ambiguous. Our discovery is literally the words right out of the FMCSRs. And they love to fight us on it. And I get to go show the judge that, judge, this is, this is their OP1 or they would have signed something like this because you don't actually get their signed one often. And here's the actual language of the regulations they promise to know of and follow. Is embarrassing, but I'm going to go look up the regulation of the definition <laughs> of safety management control because uh, I've, I've talked about the concept and I didn't even realize it was again. That's exactly we we take stuff from each other, and I, I didn't get that from any seminar. I got it in my reread maybe four or five years ago. I went back and read the definition sections, and it was brilliant. I was like, "Wow, this is fantastic!" And so much of what we ask now is right out of the definition of safety management controls. Yep, it, it, it's it's. Uh, there's so much more to learn all the time. We have to just keep working at getting better and better. Absolutely. One last topic, and I know you're, you haven't been wanting to toot your own horn, but you had an incredible result lately. Uh, tell me what happened. Uh, well, it's a long fight. Thank you for, for asking. Uh, my IT guy for our law firm, long-term IT guy and friend, uh, was rear-ended eight and a half years ago. And uh, had, it's a car wreck, not a truck wreck, but... Uh, we take care of our family and friends, right? Um, and rear-ended on a bridge. Uh, at, and for eight and a half years, the defense was able to obtain 13 continuances of the trial. Oh, my gosh. 
Uh, so and not all their fault. One time we were supposed to go the week of a Hurricane Irma, so it wasn't all their fault. One time we went to trial and in 2018 and we picked a jury and the judge said to the jury, you know, if you hear your name, you stay. If you don't hear your name, you go. And she said, Mrs. Smith instead of Mr. Smith. So Mr. Smith left. So that was just inadvertent, right? So anyway, we thought the case was snake pit, but we uh, were able to go to trial here in August. Uh, the judge, despite numerous con- uh, requests for a continuance, emergency motions, and a petition for certiorari and motion to stay to the appellate court, <laughs> we were able to keep the trial date and uh, put on a good trial. The defense said pay him zero or $8,100 that it was all pre-existing or a sprain strain. What kind of injuries were they? He had a single-level fusion in his neck uh, from a herniated disc at C5-6, uh, and he had some adjacent segment disease by the time the trial started uh, six years later, uh, and then he had a low back herniation at L4-5. Okay, it sounds like the kind of case that gets settled or verdicts in the two hundred dollars to $500,000 <laughs> range all the time. How'd y'all do Eleven point six two two million. How in the world did you get eleven point six two million dollars <laughs> on an operated net case? Uh, well, um, I think the most important thing is we. I emphasized through Vortire, through opening and closing, two very important things in this case. It was very simple. You know, in Florida, we're a non-joinder state, so the jury does not hear about insurance. It was just, you know, James Lightfoot versus Marilyn Hunt. So two things were very important in our case. One. We couldn't let sympathy come into play because Marilyn Hunt, the lady that rented our client, was a mom, single mom, on her way home from the hospital with her eight-year-old autistic nonverbal son in the oh back. He had just had tonsil and adenoid surgery, and she thought she heard him choking. And so instead of looking in the rear view, she looks into the back seat, and when she looks back, traffic has stopped. So we have a very sympathetic plaintiff. Oh, yeah. I mean, defendant. Um, and then, so the big thing was no sympathy in their oath. And they had to follow their oath. And it was just a clear case, in my opinion, from day one. Um, and we painted this as a distracted driving case. There are a lot of distracted driving. I got the jury to agree in board hire. What are the distractions of the car? Is it just cell phones? Oh, no. It's, it's kids. It's dogs. It's food. It's, you know, technology. Uh, and so we were able to paint it as a distracted driving case, which it was. Uh, very sympathetically, not mean towards the mom. She was in a tough situation. We pointed out that there are plenty of other options. She could have adjusted her rearview mirror. She could have put her hazards on and stopped. She could have driven over the bridge while calling 911. There's all these other things besides literally driving for three to five seconds while looking in the back of her car going up a bridge in rush hour traffic. Yeah. Okay, that's getting liability, but <laughs> how do you tell a, have a damages story that motivates someone to give eight figures on an operated neck? I mean, your person's still walking, talking, breathing. Yes. Yes. So that was a, that was a challenge. And, and uh, a couple other challenges. Our guy already had a handicap sticker before this crash for a fused ankle. So they made a big deal about that. He had a prior crash five years before with neck and back issues that he had degenerative disc disease diagnosis. So we had to, you know, convince the jury, which we believe is the truth, that this all of this that started the day after this crash, no ambulance or ER, by the way. They made a big deal about that. So... Um, for us, it was visual using the trial exhibits. We showed that from, you know, 20 years before 2006, now we couldn't go all the way back because there were some back problems early on in his life. <laughs> couldn't go all the way back. Uh, that there was no back problems. Then there was the 2006 crash. He has one visit to the ER, nothing, no follow-up. Then you go to 2011 when our crash was, and then the calendar blows up, right? He has 44 visits in 2011, 45 visits in 2012, including surgery and follow-up. 
So you get through all that. Um, and then he's deteriorated from there. Now he's in pain management. Uh, and again, he, he hasn't had a spinal cord stimulator yet. He hasn't had a radio frequency ablation yet, but they've been recommended. Defense made a big deal about that. He hadn't, you know, these have been on the table for years. He hasn't accepted it. Don't give it to him. Um, but of late, walking has really started to aggravate his low back such that the, hernia, the radiating pain down his leg was really bad. So his prime, his uh, treating pain management doctor had just prescribed a wheelchair in January of 2019 part-time. Only use it a couple hours a day to get to and from your work, then walk around. I don't want you to rely on it. So uh, he, like, we did not have him come in trial in a wheelchair. We didn't have him in the courtroom in a wheelchair. He walked in, but the jury heard that he was using a wheelchair part-time. Um, and uh, they gave us 100%, you know, 100% liability on the defense, every penny of past meds, a little bit more in future meds than we asked for because we explained we weren't asking for everything. And then they gave him $10 million, two and a half past uh, pain and suffering, the non-economic damages, and seven and a half future. So how did you argue in a convention? I mean, it's, I'm just, my mind's blown on this because <laughs> I've tried these cases and I've not had an $11 million result and I want, a, I want one. <laughs> so uh, what is it you argued or how did you frame the damages in a way that would justify $10 million for pain and suffering. I wish I could show you because in the middle of cross-examination of my neurologist, my client's neurologist, our expert, who put him at MMI in July of 2011, uh, right about the time they're saying the sprain strain would have healed, right. uh, we had to deal with that. And so in the middle of his cross-examination, I could see that they were scoring points on this. Oh, wait, he was a maximum medical improvement, Right. And so I thought to myself, I'm going to draw this on the fly. I'd never done it before. I hadn't talked to my doctor before. And I said, Doc, hang on a second. I put an X and a Y axis. This is the date of the crash. Starts up here, right? We were talking about it all the, other than his ankle. He had no limitations in his neck and back, working full time. He was exercising, having a quality of life, right? So he starts out here. He gets in the accident. He goes down, and then he comes up MMI. And so it you know, starts at the top, comes down. And I said, now, MMI, what you thought of. Does that mean he was healed? No. And then so this big gap right here is the difference between where he was before this crash and where he was after. And the doctor said yes. And the medical treatment you know, that you've expended to date is what's got him to this maximum medical improvement. Yes. So then for closing, it just came to me, I'm going to use that as my damage formula. So we argued a time unit method. Didn't say per diem or per hour. I said use the time unit method because that's what you have to do. Figure out a money to award for eight and a half years in the past and 20.3 years in the future. And so I recreated that chart a little better now where, you know, the date of the crash was the X. The edge of the first board was the date of the verdict, 8, 19, 19. And then I put a second board next to it. That's the future out 20.3 years and um, drew it out. Now we we did it to here. You all remember that jury remembered because I had the other chart in the background that they could see. And then drew it out. Now he's going to go out and he's going to get worse. And so I explained that from the length of the one board below the MMI line, that's past medical, wrote it in, the jury wrote it down. And then from, from here forward, that's the future medical and care recommended by them. Just to keep him here, we know he's going to go down right. as long as possible. That's the help equals hope, yeah. right? That's the million, da da Now that all goes to doctors and everybody else. None of that is for James Lightfoot. That's the past medical treatment and future medical treatment. And this big line here, this is what we're talking about, the non-economic damage, what cannot be replaced. Flip down a chart, and it has the seven categories of 
non-economic damages that appear on our verdict form. Pain and suffering, mental anguish, disability, physical impairment, inconvenience, scarring, loss of the capacity for the enjoyment of life. And so I tell them that each one of these, and they're written so they fit within the top line and the bottom right. line, fit into that. And um, so I see, I, uh, you mind if I go, I mean, it's a bit of an explanation. Is it okay to keep I, I, going? I, I, All right. I'm, this is something I want to use in my own trial. So, so uh, then I said, I suggest to you when you go back there, and this is from Andy Frazier on the commit. I give them full credit. Uh, you get them commit to how they're going to do it. So whoever's the four person, you're going to go through the first five questions. When you get to question six, I want you to decide on whatever the time, you know, how, whatever method the jury instruction says, you're free to use whatever method you want. I'm going to suggest to you the time unit method, which has been tried and true. Juries have used it for years. You're free to use it or not use it. But let me tell you how it works. And so I told them a bit of how it works. Instead of going for eight and a half years and 20 years, Think about that big time frame. You'd break it down into the smallest possible unit and then just agree on that unit and it's math from there. So whatever method you are, you choose. I'm going to ask your four person. My suggestion is that you go around the room and say, once you agree, yes, I agree. Yes, I agree. I look at every juror and yes, you agree. And once you agree on the method, then you'd have to determine what the unit is, what the fair reimbursement is for that unit. Go to the chart. I recommend your four-person write down these seven things on your piece of paper and put a line next to each one. And then you have to figure out what a reasonably reasonable hour reimbursement would be to live with that. Or if we pick some stranger off the street, so it's not them. Right. Right. If I walked outside, picked a stranger off the street, said you're going to have this, James Lightfoot's pain and suffering. Uh, I submit to you, if you just put $10 an hour on each of these categories, no one's taking that job for one hour, not for one day not for eight and a half years in the past, not for 20 years in the future. But if you just did $10 an hour, now some of you may say, wait a minute, you know, his scarring, yeah, he's a guy on his neck, probably doesn't mean much, so I'm going to give more for pain and suffering than I would than the $10 for scarring. I gave him some examples that would allow them some yeah. leeway, but never went below $10 an hour. And so, again, when you agree on a reimbursement for each category, go around the room. $10, $15, 20 whatever it is, is fair for pain and suffering. Get everyone to commit. Now, once you commit to the method and the unit, and these, then it's just math. You add up those numbers. In my example, it's $70. Flip the chart up. Now, line 6A is going to equal 3,105 days times 16. Why do I say 16? You know he's in pain 24 hours a day, but he sleeps. We know he doesn't sleep eight hours. You heard the testimony that interferes with sleep, but just take eight hours off. Mr. Lightfoot has given you conservative numbers this whole trial. Just do 16 hours a day. So it's 6A equals 3,105 times 16 times reimbursement. Whatever it is you think was fair when you added those seven categories up. That equals 6A. Go to the second page, which the number of days is written on the bottom. So for future, the second chart. So for the future, 6B, 7,110 days times 16 times reimbursement. And again, if you've committed to the method and you've committed to the, to the formula and the reimbursement, it's just math. No one should then go, wait a minute, because you've already committed to what would be fair. And it's going to be millions of dollars, ladies and gentlemen. There's no doubt. You're, it's entirely up to you. So if they had used our number, it would have been like 12-2. So they got real close to it. That's really close. And do you know, did you get to talk to them? No. They, they went out. In our court, it used to be in our old courthouse, they came out with us and we would send somebody out. Now they go back and the judges, they go back through the judge, the back elevator and get down. So they, it's up to them whether they want to reach out to us afterwards. And would you mind... Uh, sharing the chart so we can put on the show notes if anyone else would find them useful? Absolutely. Just keep in mind, I hand-wrote them. <laughs> I, while, while my medical illustrator went to, went, went to uh, art school, I did not. So. Okay, great. 
the uh, I guess the last thing is if anybody wants to get a hold of you, uh, either because they want to ask follow up on questions or maybe they have a case they want to talk about working uh, with you on, how do they find you? Uh, truckcrashlaw.com, a nice easy website. Uh, and my, my email is JVC, Joseph Vincent Camerlingo, right? JVC at Truck Crash Law, or just easy team at Truck Crash Law is an email. Uh, my, my, my number is very simple it's 888 511 truck uh, or 904 607 5770. Joe, I really appreciate it. I have taken things out of here that I am going to use in my practice. This has definitely been worth my time. I hope everyone listening has enjoyed this as much as me. Thank me you. too. Thank you very much for having me, Michael. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you're listening to this episode on a mobile device, please click on Ratings and Review and leave our show a five-star rating and write a review. And if you're listening to this episode from our website, please leave a five-star rating on the episode page. We'd love to reach more listeners, and doing this will help more attorneys find this podcast. You can also visit our website at www.triallawyernation.com to opt into our mailing list so you can stay updated on our new episodes. I promise we won't spam you. And thanks to your feedback, we've improved our podcast website. There's now a resources tab that you can click that shows you all the books we've mentioned on our podcast. If you have a Facebook account, please send us a request to join our private group called Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle. This exclusive group will allow you to hear about our guests before an episode airs, interact with the show, and get a sneak peek at some of the behind the scenes moments. I love to hear from all of you, and our Table Talk episodes are based solely on questions from our fans. So please continue to send us emails at podcast at Thanks for tuning in, and I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking, commercial motor vehicle, and product liability cases. If you have a case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. We would be honored to review the case in detail, discuss where we believe we can add value, and create a mutually beneficial partnership. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to podcast at triallawyernation.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our hosts, guests, or contributors and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.